Please take your Bibles out and turn in them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Luke, chapter 1, in the, the text of, of Zechariah and his prophecy. It's printed for you in the bulletin as well, and you're welcome to follow along there. And you're also encouraged, if you do have your Bibles, to open them and see the text in its context. We've been taking a break during the month of December from our series that we had been pursuing through the book of Exodus, and we'll pick that back up in a couple of weeks, but uh, we're looking at some of the uh, responses in these first couple chapters in Luke to the good news that the birth of Jesus Christ was coming. The announcements were being made and, and songs were being sung, and today it's the song sung by Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, uh, who would prophesy... You'll remember, he was the one who the angel came to him and announced to him good news that his wife, Elizabeth, who had never been able to have children, was now going to have a son, even in their old age. And Zechariah, just like any of us, most likely, didn't believe it at first. He doubted. And as punishment for that doubt, the angel said, until the baby was born, he would not be able to speak. And so nine months passed, and not saying a word. And then, when the baby is born, and, and they gave him the name John, that the angel instructed them, his voice returned. <clears throat> look at, if you have your Bibles open, you can look to verse 64, Luke 164. And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And that's what is recorded for us, starting in verse 67, as he's filled with the Spirit. And he's blessing God. He sings this song, perhaps. We don't know if he said it or, or sung it, but it's this song of praise. And it says he's prophesying. And, and it seems as though he's prophesying about his son, about John the Baptist, who he would be and what he would do. But as it turns out, he's really talking about Jesus. Because that was John the Baptist's job, was to prepare the way for Christ and to point people to Christ, to preach of Christ. We remember John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, he himself would say, he, speaking of Jesus, he must become greater, I must become less. So even here for Zechariah to prophesy at the birth of John the Baptist, what he's doing is praising God for sending Christ. And so he's talking really about Christ in this passage today. So let me read this prophecy from Luke 1, starting in verse 67. Uh, we'll read through verse 80, I suppose, the end of the chapter. Uh, let me ask, if you're able, would you join me in standing today for the reading of God's Word? Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us, in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, 
to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, this is your word that is given to your people to make us wise for salvation, to lead us to Christ and to teach us about him, both who he was and what he did for us. It's your word that is given to teach us your will, to bring the conviction of our sin, to bring the knowledge of forgiveness of our sins, and to bring the instruction to teach us, to grow us in righteousness and in, uh, to disciple us in the true way, that we might live as becomes the followers of Christ, to walk in holiness and righteousness before you all our days. Lord, we ask now, will you be our teacher from your word to instruct our hearts? It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I remember one particular moment. I think I must have been in high school, a teenager, or something like that. And it was around this very time of year and I remember, well, my mom saying sort of just an off-the-cuff remark. She said, well, you know, I just can't seem to get into the Christmas spirit this year. And I remember hearing that and being sad because Christmas spirit was so wonderful. Because this was a time of joy. And even then, I remember I knew what she meant, that Christmas is supposed to be a time of joy and thanksgiving and gladness and and everything is supposed to be light and happiness, right? Isn't that the way Christmas is portrayed? That everything is good all around us. And yet she was saying she just wasn't feeling that. No doubt it was a, a cause of the, the stresses of adulthood that I had no idea about at that point. That, that life doesn't stop at Christmas time. And, I, and so I, I knew what she meant. And so I want to ask the question today, what is the Christmas spirit? That's, that's a cultural term, of course. It's not in the Bible. But, but what is Christmas really about? And I want to talk to all of us, both the adults here as well as to the kids here, because we all have, have the, our own temptations, don't we, to miss the point of Christmas? Right? When we're young, when we're kids, it's easy for us to be so focused on the gifts, on what we want for Christmas, and we make our lists, we check them twice, right? And we're so excited, there's so much anticipation that, that perhaps the fact that Christmas is about Jesus, kind of, we kind of forget that. But it's the same thing for adults, isn't it? The reasons are different. The reasons are different, it's because life doesn't stop at Christmas time. Because we still have the same stresses, we still have the same worries, the same concerns. In fact, some of those even are multiplied at Christmas time. And so again, we, we fail to be in this spirit of Christmas. And so I want us to look at, at Zechariah today, see what Christmas meant for him, see what he was talking about. These are words that he had waited perhaps nine months to be able to speak. He had plenty of time to prepare the words. This is not off the cuff. This is not just spur of the moment. This is a, a well-thought-out song of praise and worship that he puts together. And I want us to look at this and see three things that Christmas is really about. And I hope in looking at 
these simple, three simple points. I hope in looking at them and studying them from God's word, I hope it will help us at Christmas time to be just sort of re-centered by God's word, to be a little more focused this year, to be able to enjoy all the, the trappings, everything that goes along with Christmas, to be able to enjoy it, to have fun with it, but at the same time, to have the center be, be steady, to be firm, to be solid in our Christmas celebrations in, in three things. Christmas is about worship. It's about the gospel. And it's about a transformed life of obedience. Worship, the gospel, and a transformed life of obedience. I want those three things to anchor Christmas for us this year. First of all, it's about worship. Christmas is about worship. If we were to, to simply ask, to, to look at this text and to say, what did it mean for Zechariah? What did it mean for Mary? What did it mean to the angels and the shepherds? Any of the characters in these stories that we know so well, what did it mean for them to be in the Christmas spirit, to think about what was happening all around them? And to, we have their responses. And again, each one of these responses is considered. It's thought through. And the first thing they all mention is that Christmas is a time of worship. I, look just over at, at Mary for a moment in her song that she sings in Luke 1, starting in verse 46. The first words are, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Mary begins her song about Christmas with simply stating that this is about worshiping the Lord for what he has done for his people. She's going on not to talk about her, but the rest of the, her song is about what God has done. He who is mighty has done great things and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm and scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. We hear her sing what is a song of worship to the Lord to exalt and rejoice and to magnify him, we think of all the people who know what Christmas is about, we would think Mary would have a pretty good idea of what Christmas was about. She was there. She had a role to play, kind of a big one. And when she thinks of what it means, where does she go? She says, my soul magnifies the Lord for what he has done in this. We could say that's the first Christmas carol. And she sings, and, and what's interesting is she doesn't mention a baby in a manger. She doesn't mention oxen lowing all around. She mentions that God in Christ is doing great things for his people. And she magnifies his name because he has remembered his mercy and looked upon his people. He's raising them up. He's saving his people. She focuses on this idea that God is lifting up the downcast. I have a, a friend who likes to say, Christmas is for those who need it most. Right? It's, not, it's not just for the kids. Right? We don't just give them the holiday as though it's all about that. He says, Christmas is for those who, who need it the most, who are the poor, the downcast, the downtrodden. It's not about those who can afford all the good gifts. In fact, Christmas is for those who can't 
afford the good gifts, those who are mourning at Christmas time. It's for those who are lonely on Christmas Day, those who are feeling broken. Why? Because the whole point of Christmas is that God has remembered his mercy and he has lifted up the downcast. That he has come to raise them up out of the ashes and to give them a seat and to, and to give them comfort. And he lifts them up, exalting those of humble estate. That's the good news of Christmas. Christmas is first for those who need it. Or look at the angels and their announcement. We know it so well that the angels, it's over in chapter 2 of Luke around verse 10, and they make their announcement to the shepherds who are out in the field abiding. And it's called good news. And what is it immediately followed by? Immediately this whole choir of angels in the, in the heavens singing, glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. They can't hardly get the words of announcement out of their mouth before the choir is worshiping lifting their hearts to the Lord and singing glory to God in the highest. You know, could I be so bold as, as to say something for us that, that when we hear the good news of Christmas, to the extent that, that our hearts are immediately going to something other than worship, to the extent that our first thought is not glory to God in the highest, my soul magnifies the Lord, to the extent that that's not our first reaction, Something is wrong. Something, we're off base. We're not centered as we ought to be here by the story. It probably means that we're doing the thing that, that comes so easily for us this time of year that, that we've put all the emphasis on the secondary things of Christmas. Secondary things are good. They have a place, right? Second place. And we need to keep them there. Because we can't let them take over what is the first place of Christmas, and that is Christmas is about worship. That's the heart of it. That's, that's my desire for us as, as individuals, families, a church body even this year, is that, that Christmas will be a day that is filled with worship, that is looking to the Lord, coming together, because that's the heart of it. Even in Zechariah's song, verse 68, the first thing he says Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Nine months of planning. What do I say? What's the first thing that's worthy of saying after being silent is this. Blessed be the Lord God. He has visited and redeemed his people. He starts with worshiping the Lord. I'm sure some of you have noticed by now that Christmas falls on a Sunday this year. Next Sunday, Christmas Day. I remember I remember that happened one year when I was a kid and, and I have a, a pretty clear memory of being maybe just a, a hint disappointed because, you know, like all normal people, our church met in the morning. And so that had the chance to interrupt other very important Christmas morning activities such as opening the presents, but the reality was it didn't even matter. My brother and I were up so early. We got our parents up so early. We had the presents opened, breakfast eaten, dressed for church, time to spare. Not a big deal. Now, here, we actually have an advantage here since we're going to be meeting at 1 o'clock in the afternoon next Sunday, as we always do, and so you have plenty of time. 
No worries about that. Plenty of time for presents in the morning. But, but here's the thing. I, I know that sometimes we hear Christmas is going to be on a Sunday. And perhaps our first reaction is a little bit of, oh man, a little bit of disappointment because that's going to interrupt the day. We, we, have our, you know, we have the whole day planned out. We know how it ought to be. And it's a, just a family day of celebrating and rejoicing together. Uh, and that's, those are good things. <laughs> those are good things. But when we think about it, what better way to celebrate Christmas than to gather together as the body of Christ for worship? What better thing to do than to gather together and, and join our voices in saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Glory to God in the highest. What more appropriate thing is there for us as believers in Christ to do on Christmas Day than to gather together for worship? And so we need to to think on that. You have a whole week to convince yourself of that if you're not there yet, that worship is the best possible thing to do on Christmas. And I'm looking forward to gathering together next Sunday on the afternoon of the the day we celebrate the birth of Jesus and to engage together in worship. Christmas is first about worship. It's also about the gospel. It's about the gospel. Uh, what, What better way to learn how to sing together with Zechariah and to, to fuel our worship than by talking about, studying the good news of Jesus Christ and, and even at the risk of sounding like I'm stating a bit of the obvious here in church, I'll go ahead and say it. It needs to be said, Christmas is about Jesus. It's about the fact that, that our God remembered his promises that he made to his people and he raised up for them a savior who is Christ the Lord, and he was born in Bethlehem. And the, sa- and the, the shepherds and the Mary and Zechariah, they rejoiced and they worshipped because a Savior had been born. See, if we're going to, to remember point number one, which is that Christmas is about worship, we do it by fueling that worship with thoughts of the good news of Christ. We focus on Christ, and when we do, when we focus on the gospel, what comes from that ought to naturally spring up as worship. When we focus on worship, sometimes it feels empty. It feels like we're just going through the motions. But when we focus on Christ, that is what moves us to worship. That's what fills our hearts to worship. See, even here at, in Luke chapter 1, the very beginning of the Gospels, they always talk about what Jesus has come to do. There's, there's none of this, what we might call just sentimentality, talking about the baby in the manger, little baby Jesus. No, they always go very first to his purpose, his calling. Why is he here? Why was he born? He was born to be a savior for his people, to be the savior, to forgive them their sins. Right as the angel said to Moses, they should call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. It is good news And it's good news in particular because these were people who knew how badly they needed saving. Right? The news of a Savior doesn't come as good news if you don't think you need one. But we can tell when we read it that they were rejoicing, they were worshiping because they knew how badly they needed a Savior. They knew that they were those who were sitting in darkness. 
And so if we are going to be able to sing like Zechariah at Christmas, if we're going to be so filled with joy that we also break into song, that happens only when you know how badly you need a Savior to be born to you. See, this is what can, this is what can expose the state of our hearts. Because if for us, if Jesus is nothing but sort of our, our own version of religious window dressing, if he sort of fills that religious gap in our lives, if he's something to, to check that box off, then, then Christmas won't cause us to break out in rejoicing, in singing, in worship. But if he is the Savior that we so badly know that we need. See, as I listen to, listen to some of the words that, that Zechariah sings and we hear the sense of anticipation and we hear the sense of urgency. Verse 70 as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore. See, Zechariah has been studying these promises. He knows that oath that he swore, the covenants that he made, the words that he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. He knows all those. See, I think of it, like this. If I were to say to my kids, see, today is Sunday, if I told my kids, kids, this coming Saturday, this is just an illustration, but if I told them this coming Saturday we are going to go to Toys R Us, and we can all pick out new sets of Legos, and then we're going to go to the, the frozen ice cream store, and we're going to buy all the frozen ice cream that we can handle, and then we're going to go home and watch movies all day. If I were to say that to them, if there's one thing I know about parenting, it's that I better mean it because they are going to remember every single word that I say and they are going to ask me every single day this week, is it Saturday yet? Are we going to do it? Can we go today? Is it time? Has it come? Because that is something they desperately want. That is their dream day. And so if I tell them that day is coming, they're going to hold on to those promises. They are going to hold on to them and never let them go and be constantly calling out and asking, is it time? And when I hear Zechariah say, this is what's happening just as he said was going to happen. The words he spoke from the prophets, the oath that he had swore, the covenant that he had made. See, Zechariah is one of these who knows how badly he needed those promises. Zechariah is one of those who had been holding on to those words and not letting them go, longing for the day when they would be fulfilled. Because that was what he knew that he needed. And so he's holding on to those words. He knows how badly he needed those promises. And so we need to know our own hearts. Do we know how badly we needed a Savior? Someone who could raise us up. You see, if, if, if you are one of the ones who the Spirit has actually brought the conviction of sin, right? where it's not just sort of a, an academic thing where you know we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But if you know by the conviction of the Spirit that you yourself are a sinner and that it's something that you mourn over because you have experienced the effects of sin. You, you know the hurt that it brings, the brokenness that it brings, even the, the death, the estrangement. When you know that, then that makes your heart long for the good news, for someone who will come and rescue you from that sin. Because perhaps you've been, you're the one who has tried other ways to avoid it and nothing else works. We can't rescue ourselves from
from our sin, but if we are the ones who have sat in the shadow of death and we've seen our loved ones die, not just physically, but, but walking in spiritual death, if we've longed for the life and, and the health and we've longed to walk in the way of peace, then Christmas becomes good news because here's the announcement. Jesus has come to forgive sins. Jesus has come to rescue his people. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That's the good news. See, what Zechariah is focusing on here is the gospel. It's nothing less. It's not that he separates out Christmas when Jesus was a baby and there's all this and, and that's separate from the cross and, and the end of his life and the grave and the resurrection. It's all together. And he says, what's great about Christmas is the gospel. That God is doing for us in Christ what we can never do for ourselves. That he now has brought salvation. See, Christmas is for those who sit in deep darkness and long for the fulfillment of the promise. A light has shined on us. And so... Christmas is, is first about worship. Second, it's about the gospel. It's about the gospel, the good news. And then thirdly, also, it, it's not just worship, the gospel. It's also about a, a transformed life of obedience. And we see this in the text. This is perhaps not something we think of at Christmas time, but it's about a transformed life of obedience. Look at verses uh, 74. He says that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So he focuses on the gospel and it moves him to worship because this is the good news that we are saved from our enemies and that therefore, being delivered from them, we might now serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. See, what he's saying here is that there's actually, there's an ethical component to the way that we celebrate our Christmas. That it's not just about, uh, you know, the gifts we give, the parties we throw. In fact, we could be so bold, it's not just to say about, it's not just going to be about the way that we worship on Christmas Day itself, but Christmas is also about how we now can live our lives. Today, next week, the week after that, the week after that, next summer, he is saying that, that now, having been saved, we live transformed lives. After all, we can't sing joy to the world, the Lord is come, and not submit our lives to his lordship. We can't celebrate the birth of a king and not humbly submit our lives in obedience to that king. Right? If we're going to hail Christ as king and, and reverence him as Lord, that means that we then obey, that we walk as he would have us to walk. You see, he's coming and heralding the birth of Jesus, and the birth of Jesus is to save his people, and the purpose of saving his people is that we might now serve him without fear, that we might live for him in holiness and righteousness. There's, there's a purpose to Jesus' birth, and it goes beyond what we might say just the, the very simple uh, essentials of the gospel, that is salvation from sin and forgiveness. It goes beyond that, that there is now transformation that comes from it. And Zechariah is celebrating the transformation right at the very beginning. 
Jesus hasn't even been born yet. And he's already rejoicing that now we will be living transformed lives because we're free from the sin in our lives. I mean, we have such a good example of this that, that we're getting to now in the book of Exodus, where we've been, that uh, the people here in Exodus, we begin, of course, they're enslaved in Egypt by their enemies. Uh, and if we think, what do we hear the Lord saying to Pharaoh over and over and over? It's not just, let my people go, but he says, let my people go that they might serve me. That there's a purpose to the, the freedom that he's going to give them. He's saving them from the slavery, literal slavery, in Egypt, bricks without straw. He saves them in order that they might now serve him. There's a purpose to it. Not just that they might be free and, and do whatever they now please and wander in the wilderness forever, but he's saving them in order that he might take them to the mountain, Mount Sinai, that can reveal, graciously reveal his law, his, his word, his character to the people. That he might graciously give them the instructions of building the tabernacle because he's taking them out of slavery and forming them now into a new kind of people that they haven't been before. A new kind of people who walk in obedience, who worship, who learn what it is to be this kind of people that worship the Lord and live by his word in total freedom from their enemies. That was, that was all the blessings of Exodus right there, that they now have freedom from their enemies, and so they don't have to serve them anymore. They're not wasting their life in that kind of lifestyle, this bricks without straw, producing nothing. Now they have the freedom to walk as God's people with transformed lives, worshiping him in holiness and reverence all their lives. That's why the story of Exodus doesn't end after chapter 12. That's where they're set free, but that's when the real story is really just beginning. And it's such a practical book for us because we think about Israel, even when they're receiving the law, when they're learning what this new life looks like, what it is to serve the Lord, is it all just flowers and sunshine from that point on? Of course not course not. There's still the, the battle for them. The battle for them with sin. They're still battling their, their old habits, the old demons that haunt them, as it were. Isn't that just like us? Just like us who have been saved from our sin. We're, we're free from that. There is no master that has power over us to force us into those old habits. We're free from it. And yet, ah, that's what we're used to, isn't it? That's the old man that clings so closely, that still tempts us and leads us in that way, despite the fact that we are free from it. But now, here is Zechariah, and he is singing a new song, because he knows that for hundreds of years, that is how Israel has walked. They, they had the law of God, but they did not have the real power to live before him in holiness, because the law couldn't do that. As good as it was, as gracious a gift as it was to them, the law itself did not have the power to transform the people, to, to cause them to walk in holiness. It didn't do it. In fact, there's, there's an old ditty, perhaps, that has been credited to John Bunyan. He sang, run, jo run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. He's looking back and saying, the law, it, it told us what to do, it commanded us, but it couldn't really give us the power to do it. 
but in the gospel. Now Christ has truly freed us from our enemies, not Egypt, but sin, death, the devil. All of that, he has truly freed us from it and given us a new nature. He's taken out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh to to transform us from the inside out that now, through Christ, we might serve him without fear. Now there is a new power for us in the gospel. That we're not just commanded to live in holiness and righteousness, but this is a song of worship to the Lord because now we are free to do it. Now there's actual power to do it because we have been saved from our sins. He has given us, verse 77, he's given knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And that is what the people have needed. That is what we need. That is what Zechariah has known how badly he has needed for all these years. And it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that teaches us that now you are free from sin. You're free from fear. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. Sin shall not be your master. You have no ugly sin master ruling over you, forcing you in slavery to do that which you don't desire. Rather, you're free. You're free from all of that. Those, those rulers have, have been done away with at the cross so that you are now free to live in righteousness, free to pursue a life of holiness. Will it be a perfect one? No, that's, that's not where we're at yet, but we are free to pursue it and to walk in obedience. And Zechariah praises God for this at Christmas. The good news that Jesus is coming is, is reason for worship. It's reason for worship because the gospel is here. It's coming, the good news that has been promised that he's been holding on to and waiting for for so long. And so he worships because of the gospel. And he even looks forward now and says, Now... Because of what Jesus has done, his people are free from fear, and now we can serve the Lord without fear. That's the, that's the end game of Christmas, isn't it? Of our Christmas celebrations? How we can serve the Lord without fear, walking before him in holiness and righteousness all our days. This is, this is my hope for us from this text, to, to recenter, to, to rebalance our perspective on Christmas, to give us uh, really a true spirit of Christmas this year, focused on Christ and worshiping the Lord for all he has done for us through him. Let's pray to the Lord together. Father, our desire this year is, is not to, to be caught up in, in the craziness, but rather in, in simplicity of worship to come before you, to give you the thanks and the glory, the praise, the honor, for you are worthy. For you in Christ have raised up a horn of salvation for us out of the house of David. And how badly do we need it? So, Father, we ask that, that you will use your word this year as we are preparing our Christmas celebrations and focusing on what is to come. We ask that you will use your word to give us a, a joy in our spirits and a simplicity to our celebrations that are focused on Christ, that is, is thankful for him, that gives glory to him, in every way that, that we honor him. And so, our God, we give you praise and we give you the thanks. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.